Welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, originating from Westminster Presbyterian Church here in downtown Minneapolis. My name is Donald Meisel, minister here and moderator of these forums. Understanding Islam in the modern world, that is today's urgent theme. Short of understanding Islam, how can we relate to 18% of the world's population? Short of understanding Islam, how can we deal knowingly and wisely and caringly with the Middle East, great portions of Africa, important segments of the former Soviet Union, Afghanistan, India, and Pakistan, to name but a few? Short of understanding Islam, how can we be sensitive to the 5.6 million Muslims in North America whose numbers and places of worship and influence are growing apace? Short of understanding Islam, how can we relate to the fact that there are more Muslims than Episcopalians living in these United States? You could say Presbyterians as well, but I've always heard it said Episcopalians. <laughs> How can we understand Islam in the modern world unless we have someone to teach us? Our teacher today is one of the world's outstanding Islamic scholars, Dr. Sayed Hussain Nasser, professor of Islamic studies at George Washington University in Washington, D.C. Dr. Nasser was born in Tehran and received his early education there. He has a Bachelor of Science degree in physics from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. He earned a PhD from Harvard University in the history of science and philosophy. He has taught at such various places as Tehran University, the University of Beirut, Harvard University, the University of Utah, Temple University, and now at George Washington University. He is also currently a D. White Professor at Large in Islamic studies at Cornell University. An added important note, while in the Twin Cities, Professor Nasser will participate in fundraising activities for the production of a film or a series of films entitled Islam in the West. This is a six-part public television documentary being produced in the cause of world peace. Dr. Nasser has written widely, spoken widely, and we are grateful to have him speaking to us today. Dr. Nasser, welcome. Dr. Meiser, ladies and gentlemen, this is a sanctuary built in memory and for the worship of God. And let me begin with his name, the God who is worshipped not only by Christians, but also by Muslims and Jews, and of course by people of all faiths throughout the world. I've been given a few minutes to speak about a very vast subject, understanding Islam in the modern world. A subject which is extremely crucial, not only for theological and religious reasons, but even for everyday world peace for being able to live on this planet, but one which is very difficult to come by because there's perhaps no subject of such significance 
that is combined with such distortions and lack of knowledge and depth, distortions which are oftentimes not only due to inadvertent ignorance, but oftentimes very active and calculated distortions, which are very sad indeed. Many people, when they think of the Islamic world, even today, they still think only a one small part of it. No one even knows where the Islamic world is. Over a billion Muslims living on the earth, over half of them do not even figure on the cultural map, you might say, of how the world is looked upon in American universities. So let me start my short discussion by first of all saying what and where is the Islamic world. The Islamic world is not only the Arab world, although the Arab world is the most central part of the Islamic world for two reasons. First, that the sacred scripture of Islam called the Quran, or Quran in English, was revealed in the Arabic language. And secondly, that the prophet of Islam was an Arab. God chose him to reveal his final major revelation to humanity. And for that reason, the Arab world has always played a central role in Islamic civilization, and the Arabic language has always been the most important language of that civilization. However, today, the Arabs comprise about no more than a fifth of the world Muslim population, encompassing the southern and eastern Mediterranean region down to the Persian Gulf. Then there is the Persian world, the second important world of Islam, encompassing not only what is today Iran, but also Afghanistan, Tajikistan, certain of the major cities of Uzbekistan, and parts of Pakistan. And the influence of this world, which is sometimes called the Persianate world, that is a world culturally under the influence of the Persian version of Islamic civilization, extends well into India and China. Thirdly, there is the Turkic world. I do not call it Turkish, but Turkic world, in that it embraces the present-day Turkey, the over 50 million people living on the Anatolian uh, Peninsula and European Turkey, but also in the newly independent Republic of Azerbaijan and certain of the other independent republics east of the Caspian Sea, such as Uzbekistan, Kyrgyzstan, etc., and extending all the way to Vladivostok and the farthest e eastern regions of, of what was the Soviet Union, and this part is now part of Russia. There are also many Turkic Muslims within what is called Russia today, which is still not the old Russia, but has taken over a large amount of the Islamic world during the colonial period of the Tsarist regime in the 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries. Then there is the world of Indian Islam, encompassing over 300, perhaps 350 million uh, human beings who are hardly ever studied qua Muslims, and that includes the Muslims of India, over 100 million people, and the Muslims of Bangladesh, also over 100 million people, and that of Pakistan, uh, about 115 to 120 million people, and then small numbers in Nepal, Sri Lanka, and other regions of the greater Indian world. Then there's the world of Malay Islam, encompassing the largest Islamic country, Indonesia, from the point of population, and also Malaysia, Brunei, southern Philippines, and small pockets of Malays in the unfortunate country Cambodia where the Islamic population was practically completely destroyed, and Thailand. And then there's the very major world of black Muslim Africa, 
not including North Africa, which is Arab, that is west and south of the Sahara, all the way from Senegal to the Sudan, and the fastest growing region of the Islamic world, numerically speaking, encompassing perhaps nearly 150 million people of black origin and race who are Muslims, and some of whom have been Muslims for over 700 years, the major Islamic empires of West Africa going back to the 12th and 13th centuries. That is, their history is as old as that of many of the classical cultural areas of Europe, including France itself, where the French language really began to crystallize around that time. And finally, there is the world of Chinese Islam, which nobody ever thought, talks about. Nobody even knows how many Chinese Muslims there are, but anywhere from 30 to 100 million have been mentioned. And it's a very major world with its own very distinct Islamic cultural heritage, much of which destroyed during the time of Mao Zedong and also before that in the 19th century through wars of attrition against the Muslim population, but much of which survives nevertheless. And then there are the major Muslim minorities in Europe and America. As Dr. Meiser just said, there are now today somewhere between 5.5 to 6 million Muslims in the United States and Canada, large populations of Muslims in South America, especially Brazil, and about 8 million Muslims in Europe, comprising the largest non-Christian minority in Europe. And people are astounded to hear that there are blue-eyed Slavic Muslims in Bosnia who are now being massacred during the last few weeks and who come on the map for the first time because they're being uh, defeated and destroyed by the great tragedies taking place in what is the broken up Yugoslavia of the last two years and uh, who represent the oldest uh, European Muslim community which has survived to this day, Spain having been taken back by Catholicism in the 15th century. And there are also major minorities in China and India, which I've already mentioned, as well as within Russia, a story which you have not heard much about, but you will hear a great deal about in the future, that is parts of the Islamic world, which are not the republics that have become independent in Central Asia and Caucasia, but which are within what Russia claims as being part of Russia. And uh, that is a very important minority within that larger world. And finally, within the regions of Africa, which are either so-called, quotes and quotes, pagan, that is to follow the primal and native African religions, or which are predominantly Christians, such as the southern and southeastern reg regions of Africa. Now, this is a rather vast world, and it's remarkable that there is such misunderstanding of it. The misunderstanding is due to many factors into which I cannot go in the short time allotted to me today. But they include, first of all, certain deep historical misunderstandings, which comes always when you have a feud within a family. Islam was too close for comfort at the moment when Christianity was becoming the civilization, creating the civilization of Western Europe, what we call Christian civilization, during which time the only other civilization ever knew was Islam because it was cut off from the major civilizations of Asia, such as that of India and China and Japan, by Islam itself, and also from Africa. And Byzantium was also Christian, so it was not really that much different. The only other civilization that the West knew was Islamic civilization. And because Christ and the Virgin Mary 
and the patriarchs of the Old Testament were also mentioned in the Quran and the Muslims worship the one God, it could not be excused away so easily as just some form of exotic paganism and therefore it occupied the mind and soul of many, many generations of European Christian thinkers, many of whom also uh, borrowed and would uh, openly from Islamic philosophy and theology like St. Thomas Aquinas and others who wrote against Islam uh, as a danger to Christendom. This, of course, as you know, led to the Crusades, which was not begun by Muslims, but by the Cluny monks of France, a fact which is oftentimes forgotten. The idea of a holy war, which now is always associated with the name of Islam, historically, in fact, the greatest holy war was not carried out by Islam, but Islam was the receiving end of it. But this element has always remained in Western civilization, even after centuries during which the West dominated over the Islamic world as a colonial power and still dominates over it indirectly in many ways, including economic and cultural ways of having influence and control. The second type of reason is due to the fact that there are very powerful vested interests in the United States and Western Europe today, which in fact do not want to have a better understanding of the Islamic world brought about. And those vested interests are some political, some economic, and make therefore the situation very difficult to bring about an understanding which is nevertheless of extreme importance, both for the Islamic world and for the West, including the United States, which now finds itself alone as the major power in the world uh, arena of politics. The first thing to understand about Islam in the modern world is that Islam is not dead but living. That is, it's a faith which is very strong. Despite the eclipse of much of Islamic civilization, that is, its urban design, architecture, uh, poetry, music, art of, of various kinds, is educational system, much of which was either changed or distorted or destroyed after two, three centuries of the experience of the colonial period. Nevertheless, as a faith, Islam is a very powerful and living faith. And if Christians, this being a sanctuary, Christian sanctuary, I'm sure most of the audience are devout Christians, want to understand how strong the Islamic faith is, you must remember that the vast majority of Muslims throughout the world still pray five times a day to Mecca and fast during the month of Ramadan. It's like the old days when Christians used to go to church three times a day in the Middle Ages. And then gradually became once a day and then once a week. And unfortunately now people oftentimes do not go to church except on major holidays. And so the people have oftentimes the conception that religion is one of the elements of life. Whereas in the Islamic world, Islam itself, religion is not one of the elements of life. It is life itself. And to understand Islam in the modern world, one must understand the degree of intensity of the faith, no matter how interpreted or misinterpreted by various forces, which is nevertheless present. This is also the key for the understanding why everything in the Islamic world ends up having the name religion attached to it. Many people in the West are unhappy why has politics and religion become mixed up in the Islamic world. That would really be the story for another day, but the reason is precisely that in any society, what is strong and important in that society is made use of 
by the political and economic forces in that society for their own end. There's no doubt about it. As we have seen in the history of Western Europe in the 19th century, it was ideology and in the 20th century that took people to battle. People died for their nation. In the Middle Ages, they would die for Christianity. And sometimes the, com the two combined. Now in the Islamic world, precisely because faith is very strong, political forces, economic forces, social transformations, which are natural to human existence, always have a religious element connected to them. And secondly, for the sake of history, it must be reminded, remembered that the tying of religion to direct political action in the Islamic world did not begin with Islam, it began with Judaism. That is the polit politicization of religion or the religious use of political forces, however you wish to look at it, in the modern history of the Islamic world began, of course, with the establishment of the State of Israel in 1948, which in fact was on the basis of biblical, therefore religious documents and references. And uh, the, at that time, there was no major, let's say, political party in the Islamic world which was in power and which would be called the Islamic political party. So there's also always this reverberation, you might say, across boundaries between various religions and also various nations uh, in any uh, geographical location, which is, again, natural to human existence. The second important element to understand, as far as Islam is concerned, besides the faith, is that Islamic civilization is not totally dead, no matter how many Orientalists or Western scholars would like to treat it as archaeology and put its cadaver on the table to dissect and treat it as if it were, let's say, ancient Egyptian civilization. Islamic civilization and the culture which is impregnated by Islamic and religious values is still not totally dead, it's still alive. And that is one of the major points, perhaps the most difficult point to understand for many people in the West. And let me explain the reason for, you, for this to you. Uh, a kind of historiography grew up in modern Europe, which later on was taken over by Americans, which is very deeply Eurocentric, in which the history of other peoples is important to the extent that it contributes to Western history. This is a very profound philosophical issue. It, uh, receives its most mature treatment philosophically in the hands of the famous German philosopher Hegel, and one could go on to talk about it a great deal philosophically, which I will not do this morning. But the idea that other cultures are important, provided they're in the long past and sort of contribute to Western civilization, and that one cannot accept the full legitimate existence of other civilizations which are still living today is a very, very powerful mental and intellectual force in contemporary American and European milieus. In these milieus, in these ambiences, uh, the other civilizations are studied for their historical interest. And this especially is true of Islam. If Western intellectual circles were to accept Islamic civilization as being actually an independent civilization which must be respected on its own, 
then, of course, they would have oftentimes to rethink their own philosophical premises. I'm not talking here about all Western thinkers here, but sort of the mainstream philosophical thought which tried to absolutize the Western experience, uh, which one of the most powerful and devastating was, of course, Marxism. That's, that's, uh, Marxism was one of the ways in which the experience of Western civilization was absolutized. In, and, uh, but there are other non-Marxist ways in which this has been done. If Islamic civilization were to be accepted as standing on its own as an independent civilization, which is still viable, which is still around, which still has the right to do things as much as Western civilization or another civilization has the right to do things in its own way, then that would challenge, as I said, this kind of totalitarian view of history, which is very prevalent with many people in this country without knowing it. Because Islam at the same time is much more difficult to swallow than, let's say, Japanese civilization. Because on the one hand, it is related to the Abrahamic world from which Christianity and Judaism issued. And on the other hand, it knew very well the world of the Medi ancient Mediterranean uh, cultures, especially the Greco-Alexandrian, which serves as the other uh, pillar for Western civilization. Therefore, the acceptance of Islamic civilization as an ex independent civilization is something very difficult for many people to grasp. And that is the root of why everything in the Islamic world keeps getting judged according to current Western standards. It's natural for human beings to judge others according to themselves. This is in the trait of all human beings in all ages. But then to try to claim this as being the absolute objective truth is quite something else. It is this which distinguishes our age from other ages, in which there is a kind of cultural totalitarianism, which simply will not work in a world in which not all other cultures are dead. The best example of it is the idea of a global village. I always mention this example. Whoever asked others whether they wanted to be members of this village or not, somebody in the West inve invented this term and it's applied to the whole globe. And now the idea of the new world order, of course, is leading more and more to the new world disorder, but uh, that's besides the point. Uh, but whoever said that all the different constituent elements of the world would get together and decide that there is a new world order. The other parts had no role in it. Nobody asked the Islamic world, uh, well, are, do you want to be part of this new world order or not? It's precisely this that is extremely important to understand if we are going to understand the role and the meaning of Islam in the modern world. Many people oftentimes ask me, why is it that the Muslims are so unhappy, they're so anti-Western, uh, they can have the freedom to practice their own religion? It is true, yes, they have the freedom to practice the ritual aspect of their own religion. But oftentimes they are not free to practice other aspects of their religion, which have a social, economic, and political dimension. Especially since Islam from the beginning did not render unto Caesar what was Caesar's, and render unto God what is God's, according to the famous saying of Christ, but consider that both the religious and the so-called profane or temporal or secular domains of life should all be integrated into a single uh, order, into a single pattern reflecting the divine law, which is the foundation of the practice of Islam. <coughs> Let me turn now, because my time is short, 
to say something about the religion itself, leaving the question of the culture and civilization behind. Uh, Islam must be seen as the third of the three major religions of the Abrahamic family of religions. That is the three great monotheisms, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. And to just talk about the Judeo-Christian religion without talking about the Islamic is to truncate the family of Abraham. The family of Abraham as it lives on the earth today. It's like a father who has three children and you just talk about two of them. It's all right to talk about two. That's fine. You can talk about any two. You can talk about any one. But you just talk all the time about the two as if the third were either the child of another marriage or didn't exist would cause family problems. The first thing to do is to remind ourselves that in the God's will, unless we say that God is so unjust as to have permitted over a billion people to go astray and to follow false doctrine for such a long time, which would make a monstrous, uh, create a monstrous conception of God, that uh, God, in fact, in his wisdom, not only created Judaism, not only created Christianity, but also created Islam. These three religions are deeply interrelated theologically, philosophically, morally, the Ten Commandments are shared between them. Uh, the conception of the divinity as the one God, the f immortality of the soul, our responsibility before God for our actions in this world, ultimate responsibility, that all ethics comes from religious morality, that uh, human beings have a certain responsibility towards other human beings and towards all of creation element which is now being more and more emphasized in the West as a result of the catastrophe of the environment which we all know about. All of these are elements which Islam shares with Judaism and Christianity. There are also of course elements of difference. There are elements of difference in the sense that Islam has a specific law like Judaism and unlike Christianity which is given by the revelation itself whereas the law of Christianity is the great sublime moral law of Christ, the spiritual law of turning the other cheek, which in fact is the law of saints. Islam has a specific concrete law, which is called the Sharia, the divine law, which is like the halakha in Orthodox Judaism. It also shares certain things with Christianity in contrast to Judaism, as far as the emphasis upon the inner life, the spiritual inward life, in addition to the law is concerned. But all the three religions have elements of similarity and also distinction without which of course there would not have been distinct religions. It must also be understood that uh, in order to study Islam seriously, Islam must be understood on its own terms. This is true of every religion. Gradually now Christian theologians are beginning to study Judaism seriously after a long, long time and the anathema cast against Judaism for deicide, for the murder of the Son of God in classical Christian theology is now put aside. The study of Islam in a sense is much simpler in the sense that there is not a single major event uh, that separates the two religions. But it's more difficult from another point of view that many Christians find it hard to accept that God would speak to man again after Christianity, that after Christ God would ever need to speak to man again. And that is there. That's an element that is there that Christians must understand, as also Muslims must understand that, in fact, Islam is not going to take over the whole of the world, that very rapidly it took over all of the eastern lands of Christianity, but never took over the western lands of Christianity. That means that God must have destined Europe to become a Christian land as it destined 
as he destined the Near East, the Middle East, to become a Muslim land. There are, of course, many important theological barriers to overcome. But the human barrier is not that important to overcome. If only Muslims were to be understood and not to be cast, as has been the case so often in the past few decades, as simply terrorists carrying bombs from place to place. Just let me cite one instance for you. If every time there were a bombing in Ireland, we say these are Catholic or Protestant terrorists, what it would do, in fact, to the relationship between Catholicism and Protestantism just in this country. It's never mentioned. It's always said Irish terrorists or some other organization. But anytime you, somebody is a Muslim who carries a bomb, he's called a Muslim terrorist or a Shiite terrorist or something like that. And these are far from being accidental. These are actually poisonous gas cast into an atmosphere which finally is going to kill everybody who breathes in that atmosphere, unfortunately. What has to be understood is that there are people in the Islamic world who are anti-Western, that's true. And there are people who do violent things, that's also true. Certainly American society should know that this is true of human nature. And this is not actually a prerogative of the Islamic world by any means. And that uh, violence exists in all human societies. But it must also be understood that much of the violence that comes out of the Islamic world is the reaction to the domination of forces over that world. Over that world which is still alive, has a strength of a billion, but has, is not the master of its own destiny because it does not have the military and economic power to be the master of its own destiny and therefore its political independence is oftentimes compromised. And it's this frustration which oftentimes leads to these violent reactions. Everybody says, why are all the Muslims anti-American? They're not anti-American. Even the Islamic Republic of Iran, the country from which I come, there's several thousand students from that republic who are now studying in the United States. What the Islamic world wants to do is to be able to be the master of its own destiny. And it has the misfortune that it has something that the West wants very much. There are two things that the West wanted very much. One was this uh, str strategic situation, which is now no longer important with the fall of the Soviet Union. And the other one is oil. And if the Islamic world did not have any oil, it probably would be much happier as a part of the world than it is today. And you would not have had the Persian Gulf War of last year and all of these high-sounding principles which are stated to uh, protect certain economic interests. And you would not have started meddling in the affairs of that world as we see it. But anyway, the oil is there. That is determined by providence. And in this situation, the Islamic world oftentimes reacts because it is not really the master of its own destiny. But ultimately, Islam, like Christianity, like Judaism, is a religion sent to bring about happiness in this world and in the next. And it's of the greatest interest, I believe, first of all, for all women and men of good faith, Christians, Jews, or otherwise, to understand and make peace with a major part of the world whose faith they ultimately share, even if not details, in details, in the major principles. And I also believe that even on a more external plane, the destinies of the West and the Islamic world are too intertwined to, uh, to think that one could set the house of the West in order in such a situation as we find ourselves in today. It is necessary to have deeper mutual understanding. It is necessary for the West, which now has the political and military and economic power, 
to understand the Islamic world West well, not only for the sake of that world upon which it acts every day and whose destiny it determines to some extent, but also for its own sake. Because, as has been said so often, a house divided unto itself shall not stand. And this works not only for a single human community, but for the whole of humankind as a whole. Thank you. Thank you for your lively reminder that the Muslim faith is very much alive, not least of all in you, and that Muslim civilization and culture is much alive. We're indebted for what you have shared with us this hour. Uh, just a quick word, those of you who need to leave the sanctuary at this time, please feel free to do so. A word to our radio audience indicate to you that you've been listening to the Westminster Town Hall Forum originating from Westminster Church here in downtown Minneapolis and that you've been listening to Dr. Sayed Hussain Nasser speaking on the theme of understanding Islam in the modern world. He is professor of Islamic studies at George Washington University. Uh, this forum is being co-sponsored today by the McKnight Foundation and we thank them for their help. The radio audience also has the privilege of posing questions along with the people who are in this uh, live audience. And if you wish to phone in uh, a question, uh, the, the uh, number here at church is 332-3421. Uh, I would urge the ushers to be gathering the uh, yellow cards from those of you who have written out questions to be uh, shared with our speaker. Please let us sort of expedite that process so we can make uh, optimal use of our time together. Well, Dr. Nasser, would you return to the platform, sir? And, and I have a, a couple of questions uh, that I've prepared to, to think to, to put to you. Uh, one, a very current one. Uh, what, in your estimation, has been the impact of the Gulf War on uh, the Muslim world and in particular? Uh, the impact of this tragic war uh, has not fully manifested itself as yet. It has, uh, but what we can see so far, besides the fact that about a million Iraqis have either died or become wounded or have suffered from maladies caused by the destruction of the sewage system or water system or other main uh, life-supporting systems in various Iraqi cities, and which itself has caused a deep pang of conscience in other Arab countries. Besides that, it has brought about a sense of, uh, you might say, depression, it's almost psychological depression among many Muslims that such a great tragedy causing tens and tens of billions of dollars should have been caused. I do not think that it has caused any greater anti-Western feeling because many people saw that this was an inter-Nicene warfare at the beginning, one Arab land against another. It has brought out, in fact, the tragic situation of the Islamic world in which so much of its wealth and of its resources are destroyed every few years. They spend the money on the oil, given, uh, coming from the oil, f to rebuild the uh, economy, to rebuild the infrastructure, and every few years, whether it be the Iran-Iraqi war or after that, this devastating war destroys so much that is built. So it has increased, I think, the sense of frustration within the Islamic world. 
Thank you for that answer. In your speech, your statement, you, you did introduce us to the vast world of Islam. Uh, I wonder if you could say something about uh, some of the differences within the Islamic faith. Uh, there are varieties of Jews, there are varieties of Christians. Uh, could you uh, educate us a bit about some of the main parts uh, of that world, that religious world, and how they differ? Uh, the most important uh, division within the Islamic world, which however does not destroy the unity of Islam as a faith, is of course between Sunnism and Shiism. Uh, uh, these two branches of Islam, the Sunni branch comprising about 87 to 88 percent of all Muslims, the very vast majority, and the Shi'i or Shiite branch about 12 to 13 percent. By that 13 percent or 12 percent is at the heartland of the Islamic world stretching mostly from Pakistan to Syria and Lebanon and south to Yemen. Uh, these are the two most important divisions within the Islamic world and their division is based really on the interpretation of both the function of the person who was to succeed the prophet of Islam and also who that person should have been. Besides that, there's a, a dis distinction in various schools of law. There are four major schools of Islamic law within the Sunni world and then of course the Shiite school of law. And then there are theological and philosophical schools as there are within Christianity and Judaism. Let's say in Christianity you've had the, the school of the Franciscans, the Dominicans in the Middle Ages. Both were theologians but different schools or between various Protestants, the schools of theology and the Catholic and, both, and within Protestantism itself. There are also these theological and philosophically different schools. And then there is the esoteric and exoteric levels you might say associated with the law on the one hand and Sufism, the mystical path of Islam on the other hand, which however does not mean a, a breach or division within the body of Islam because this is on two different levels of reality and Sufism manifests itself throughout the Islamic world, both the Sunni world and the Shiite world. Mm -hmm. Here's a related question that has come from the audience. What accounts for the increase in the Islamic fundamentalism in, in Islam? Uh, this is a term which is really what the Americans call the red herring. Uh, this term is a recently invented word taken from the experience of Protestant Christianity in America. Just 20 years ago, if you used this term in Germany or England, nobody would have understood it even. Uh, it did not even have anything to do with European Christianity, whether Protestant or Catholic. It was invented in the 70s and applied to the Islamic world and now has become so popular that one has no choice but to use it. I am in general opposed, very strongly opposed to the usage of this term, which is highly loaded politically and anything one doesn't like one calls fundamentalist. Uh, when you say that uh, black or red is a bad color, like the red used to be a bad color for a long, long time, and anything we don't like we call red or black. Now this is not a way of really understanding what the situation is. Uh, what is called fundamentalism in the Western press, and now by the scholarly community, there's a major project at the University of Chicago on the study of fundamentalism, not only in Islam, but also in Judaism and Christianity. But let's turn to the case of Islam. What is called fundamentalism, in fact, encompasses many different movements of very different nature. There are movements, for example, which want through revolution or military action 
to bring about the creation of an Islamic order, like what happened in Iran or like what has happened today in the Sudan. There are others which want to participate in the process of election and democratic processes to gain power, like what did not ha happen in Algeria because suddenly everyone who was for democracy, of course, became very mute as far as the question of Algeria was concerned and nobody started shouting uh, in Washington or in London or anywhere else that what is happening to the dem democratic process in Algeria as they did in Haiti, which is a very, very interesting case. Uh, and that's also called fundamentalist. Whereas if one is for democracy, which means the rule of the majority, one should allow the voice of the majority, in fact, to manifest itself. The reason why this, all of these phenomena, which are glued together as fundamentalism, which are oftentimes of very different nature, is on the increase, which is the other part of, the, of this question, is that as a result of the historical processes during which much of the Islamic world was colonized uh, from the 18th century until the 20th century, and those which were not, like my own country, Iran, which was never directly colonized, was nevertheless under the strong influence of the British and the Russians in the 19th century. In all of these countries, a ruling elite came to power, which in fact does not share the same worldview as the vast majority of the people who are ruled by the ruling elite. Then the reason that is so, and the reason this is so different from the time when some general in the Saljuk period or some medieval uh, ruler would come and rule over the, a country is that the worldview of the ruling elite, in fact, is not the Islamic worldview. It's oftentimes, or to some extent, or to a large extent, derived from the experiences, direct or indirect, of the ruling elite of another civilization, that is Western civilization. And therefore, you already have a major tension within the Islamic world between the worldview of the majority and the worldview of a small group which rules over that majority. And the West, in fact, is caught in the horns of a terrible dilemma, especially the United States, which champions the cause of democracy. Because if it really champions the cause of democracy in the Islamic world, the voice of the majority will carry out. And you will have much more Islamic orders or political structures in the Islamic world than you have today. And if it doesn't, then it goes against its own ethos. And this pressure to Islamicize the Islamic world more and more increases because during the last 50 years, those minorities which espoused various types of Western ideologies like nationalism, socialism, all kinds of things like that, they have not been able to deliver. The Arab world suffered three major defeats in the hands of Israel, a small country, much smaller than it in number, while that world was being governed and ruled by Arab nationalism or Arab socialism at the time of Jamal Abdel Nasser and so forth and so on and has not also been able to deliver economically. And therefore, the pressure increases continuously for the, what the people feel comfortable with, as Islamic solutions to come up. Whether those will succeed or not, I will not even get into. And many people argue that you cannot solve the traffic problem of Cairo through Islam. That is for the people to decide. But what is increasing all the time is that the inner dynamics of various Islamic societies is trying to manifest itself. And is this which very tragically continues to be called Islamic fundamentalism. And people in this country are forced to pit themselves against the natural rights of a whole part of the earth by saying this is fundamentalism, therefore let's raise our sword against it.
question from the floor, two questions really, but they all they tie together. The Islamic view of women as understood by the West is a barrier. Please discuss. Are the views of women and equality of women and men changing in that world? This is a very difficult and very important question. I'm glad somebody posed that question, whoever it is. First of all, let's analyze the context in which usually this question is posed. And let me be very frank and honest with you because we're trying to bring about mutual understanding now. If I were giving a lecture here, when this beautiful building was built in 1908 or 1907, where it was the beginning of this century, the view as to what the role of women was in Minneapolis would have been very, very different from 1993. I think all of you will agree to this. And probably in the year 2093, it will still be very different from what it is in 1993. Why should the Islamic world have to be judged as far as to the function and role of women is concerned, according to what a very vocal and important sector of American society considers the role of women to be in 1993? The United States is perfectly free, where from the point of view of its own inner dynamics, to judge what the role of men, role of women, the relationship should be. And there's no other civilization from the outside which is able to judge or to impose its criteria upon how American women or American men want to solve the relationship among themselves, the laws, the properties, the, uh, so forth and so on. When it comes to the Islamic world, however, you have this external judgmental attitude by one civilization as to why and how women in Tehran or Cairo and Karachi should act. I know of many American friends who are very unhappy that Muslim women are happy. I know what, ha what the situation is. Let me explain it to you so you can really be unhappy as you should be. <laughs> now, I believe that uh, the best way to understand the situation is, again, to try to understand the dynamics of Islamic civilization itself. Islam is not based on the equality of men and women. It's based on the complementarity of men and women. They're equal in the most ultimate sense before God. That is, they're responsible for their actions. All the laws of the religion are incumbent upon them, and they shall be judged accordingly by God in an equal way. However, it sees its, their social functions oftentimes in a complementary fashion. And certain of the prohibitions, or what appears in, from the point of view of the West to be prohibitions against Muslim women, have nothing to do specifically with the religion of Islam, but with the cultural ambience of the world into which Islam was revealed. That's why Armenian women also wear kerchiefs around their head as much as Muslim women do, and you will never be, is, see an Orthodox Jewish woman without a kerchief on her head any more than you would see a Muslim woman. Uh, in fact, the modesty of dress, for example, is not unique to Islam in that part of the world. And when Islam went to another part of the world, like Indonesia, where the situation is quite different, many very pious Indonesian women, in fact, do not cover their hair. Uh, they cover their bodies, of course, but they do not cover their hair. A lot of the, uh, what appears to be the downtrodden uh, condition of Muslim women uh, is not, a, first of all, that downtrodden by any means. Secondly, it's shared with Hinduism and Buddhism and Christianity and Judaism and so forth and so on, as far as the relationship between men and women are concerned. And the fact that a part of the human uh, uh, species, the word human race is not correct because there are several human races, but human species in one part of the world had decided to strike out on its own in a new way of judging the relationship between men and women 
should not be considered to be the only criteria. This is one of those totalitarian views of reality which I mentioned already. And what must be allowed is that the inner dynamic of Islamic civilization must be allowed to work in its own way. The Egyptian or Pakistani engineer who's studied in the West and whose wife has gone to college has an inner dynamic in his marriage with her that is going to manifest itself in ways which will not be identical with how he dealt with his wife during the time of Akbar in the 17th century, or during the Mamluk period in Egypt. But the, what is going on within the Islamic world must be really judged on its own terms. Thank you. Here's a question from the uh, radio audience. Due to the increasing number of Islamic members in our society, how do you perceive their participation in the fabric of America? This is also a very good question. I perceive it in the long run something similar to what has happened to Judaism. When Judaism first came to America, the Jews had a great deal of trouble preserving their religion. I remember once I heard from a Jewish friend of mine in New York whose grandfather had migrated that he wanted to come to Pittsburgh to perform in a concert and he had to pack his kosher food for one week because there was no kosher food in Pittsburgh at that time. Within a century now you find not only Jewish kosher food but also other elements which are necessary for the practice of the Jewish life and while both traditional and other forms of Judaism are preserved in America the Jews have also begun to participate more and more in the mainstream of American life. And I think this is most likely what is going to happen in the case of Islam. That is, on the one hand, Islam will preserve its distinct character in America as a distinct religion. America is, in a way, a, a melting pot, but one which, as an American sociologist said, a melting pot in which nothing melts, in the <laughs> sense that it's both a melting pot and one in which, like the Lutherans of this beautiful state, have preserved a very distinct character of their own. And probably that is what is going to happen to Islam in this country, but I'm sure that more and more Muslims will begin to participate in the mainstream of American life, including the field of politics, where there's now a major debate going on in the Islamic community in this country, whether in fact to keep aloof from political processes or not. But I think in the long run, probably they will also begin to participate in various elections and so forth, and there are in fact two or three Muslim candidates for the Congress and the Senate, and they participate in the primaries, and most of them lost out. But sooner or later, they probably will have also their own representatives. There is, there's one representative in Congress who is a Muslim, but more than that, and gradually enter into the main life of the United States, both socially and politically, and as they are already doing culturally and religiously. Question from the audience, what perspective ought the non-Muslim world take regarding the death warrant on the life of Salman Rushdie? This is a very complicated and important question, and let me address myself to it. Uh, it would take a long, long time to really bring out what is the background of this and why this happened, uh, which is really a political statement made at a time when uh, the late Ayatollah Khomeini made it for very specific political reasons. And I will not deal with those political and uh, religious elements that brought this about. But let me bring out what really the Salman Rushdie involves as far as the Islamic world is concerned. Uh, what is more important 
the rights of God or the rights of human beings? This is a philosophical question. And every civilization has a right to answer this on its own. In the mainstream of the Western world, the rights of man have become absolutized, oftentimes in the favor of the rights of God. That is why you can walk down Fifth Avenue and curse at Christ, nothing will happen to you. But if you curse at somebody walking in the street, you get sued for $100,000. Uh, this is the experience of a particular civilization, and it is decided to go on this path, fine. And no one has come from uh, Iran or Egypt or Turkey and say to the United States or to Sweden that you should not be doing this. The rights of God are more important. However, it does not work in reverse. That is, if a civilization wants to preserve its sacred history and say that it's, my sacred history is more important for me than the freedom of speech of the individuals within that society, then it's criticized for either being backwards or against human rights and all kinds of other things. And the Salman Rushdie affair really brought this very profound philosophical issue to the, to the center. And that's why it has caused such bitter passions. But I must tell you one story, which is a real story. When the Salman Rushdie affair occurred, I decided not to participate in the debate, although a small interview was carried out between myself and the New York Times, which appeared at the time when stories were written about it. And in fact, I told my secretary for one week that I'm not there, because there was going to be a debate right at the wall of the United Nations, where some of the leading American writers, uh, great champions of the freedom of speech, had come, in fact, to discuss this matter. After that day, when by the wall of the United Nations, Susan Sontag and other people had given all those talks defending the freedom of speech, a woman called me up from the United Nations in New York and said, I just want you to know this for the sake of history, that when there were going to be these debates, we proposed to them, and the we is a, an, an organization which tries to, do, to solve problems before they get to the UN solution-finding think tanks, that if they were going to have all of these people speak for the freedom of speech, we should also invite someone from the other side. And we propose that you come to New York and present the Islamic point of view. And that was turned down immediately. And they refused to have anyone from the other side. So the freedom of speech, I want you to know, is freedom as long as only one type of idea of freedom of speech is presented. And this is a historical fact which is really quite interesting. Now, I think the Salman Rushdie affair is very tragic, very sad. I'm against, in fact, killing anybody for these purposes on the basis of Islamic law itself. And uh, at the same time, I think the harm that Salman Rushdie has done to the Islamic world must not be at all slighted. But what it brings to the fore is that what is more important, the preservation of the sacred, which gives meaning to human life, at least the life of thousands and millions of people who accept that sacred history, or the individual's right to destroy that sacred. This is a philosophical issue. I think it's a very profound issue. But I think each society must have the right to solve it on its own terms. And the Islamic world also should have a right to solve this on its own terms, rather than being dictated by somebody who has the benefits of the modern mass media which, thanks to dishes, can go into every single home within the Islamic world uh, to solve it for them. And the reason why the Salman Rushdie affair does not go away uh, is precisely because of this issue.
Dr. Nasser, we came together here today in a search for deeper mutual understanding. I think we've made significant progress given your gifts and what you've shared, and we thank you profoundly. Thank you very much.